Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our Book of Romans study series. We are jumping right into the Bible today. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited. Chapter one, we, we covered that, right? We finished that up last week on Good Friday, and we covered with it why we need Good Friday. Because St. Paul in this, we read in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Everybody knows there is a God. They have to suppress that truth if they don't want to live as believers. But in the course of doing that, in rejecting God, God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, verse 24 says. And what does that mean? Of course, letting them do what they want and finding themselves with a debased, depraved sexual activity, finding themselves with... Uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God in verses 29 and 30. And we've read that passage so many times as young Christians. And I th most of the time we come to two conclusions. We follow the presuppositionalist saying, yeah, well, everybody knows there is a God. Or we focus on the sins that St. Paul lists. He's listing the sins that in 2022 are considered a-ok -okay by the world so we see that and we go all right well it's decision time it's either go with what the bible says is sin or go with what the world says is not sin but last week we brought up a very 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 important point to this passage and while yes you can get presuppositionalist support here in this passage of Romans chapter 1. And yes, you can see that, well, sin is sin, even if the, the people on TV and YouTube and teaching your kids are saying it's not sin. Those are true, but that's not the point of St. Paul's passage here. The point of it is found in verse 20. Five words. So they are without excuse. We covered all this last week to, to find ourselves understanding why we needed Good Friday. Why we needed our Lord Jesus going to that cross for us. Because all of humanity, and I mean everyone, finds ourselves in that boat. And it's from there that we can springboard onto chapter 2. And let's go ahead and start reading here in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, given everything that we've read from Romans 1, 18 to 32, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. All right, let's stop right there and let's unpack that. Because when it comes to the topic of judgment, we all get really confused. It's either we're confused or we should be confused. <laughs> too often, too often, guys, we see those people, we all know them, the the liberal type. They, they know only one verse in all of Holy Scripture and it's judge not. They, they've redacted all of the Bible except for those two words. And they, they think that, yes, Jesus wants you to never judge what another pe person is doing. Because it's not what they're doing that's sin, it's um, judging it that's sin. And even if it was sin, it's not sin anymore because if you judge it, that's bad. It sounds at first glance like St. Paul might be following along that tack of thinking. He says, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Now, in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1, he's covering all of this. And we might be tempted to think that, well, this condemnation does not apply to me. Because I'm a believer. I am born again by baptism in the Holy Spirit. I am a regenerate individual. God loves me. Jesus died for me and I am saved. But, <laughs> but, it's not good to say it doesn't apply to you because you're so great. St. Paul is addressing a new group of people when chapter 2 rolls around. He says, Oh, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. Now, if we stopped right there, we would be justified, kind of, in saying that, oh yeah, St. Paul is agreeing with the um, redacted denomination that redacts, redacts everything from Scripture except the two words, judge not. But he continues. This new group that he addresses here, he says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, he specifies, the judge, practice the very same things. He's not saying anybody that judges at all is under this condemnation. How do we know that? Well, because St. Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 here. And if I'm going fast... Well, it's because we got a lot of grounds to cover with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if we start here in verse 12, it says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We're called to judge. And there's times when scripture says, judge with right judgment. And regarding the sins of the world, the sins of outsiders, non-believers, people who are under that widespread condemnation that St. Paul brings and pronounces in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, those people, we're still called to witness to the truth of their actions. Does that mean we are, quote-unquote, judging them? No. Because St. Paul here, 
Remember, chapter 1 sounds very judgy, but he's just speaking the truth. The, the difference between judgment and telling the truth is when you say, I am a better person because you do these things. There, it's not really, outside of a court of law, judgment doesn't make sense without judging between two people. And the individual Christian who judges somebody in a sinful manner is saying, I am judging you to be bad because I am good. That's dangerous because of what we read here in chapter 2 of Romans. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, idolatry, depraved sexuality, um, all the, the personal or the personality sins we read about, envy, maliciousness, hating God. But he says in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God. <clears throat> Here's where we get a little bit more specific. St. Paul is not casting this wide net of condemnation on anybody who judges. Reason being, chapter 7 exists in Romans where St. Paul discusses and reveals that he himself is a sinner. It would be quite hypocritical of St. Paul to be laying out this diss track on non-believers and then laying out a diss track on, uh, on people who judge. And then for him to say, yes, I judged you all. And by the way, I'm a sinner too. I'm under the same wrath of God. <laughs> that would be insane. But he's talking about people who presume themselves to be holy. They presume themselves to be earning favor with God. And yet, in that process, find themselves sinning constantly. This is not a condemnation of any Christian who sins, but also says sin is a bad thing. This is not a condemnation of Christians who fulfill the duty of the Christian to judge those who are inside or to speak the truth regarding the world. This is for that individual who, by their nature, is trying to earn heaven. Because we see here in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So this individual here either thinks, in verse 3, that he will escape the judgment of God because of his own righteousness, that he's such a great person that God will bang the hammer on the, on the gavel here, bang the gavel and say, ah, oh, not guilty, this guy is uh, so great. Or B, this is an antinomian who says, well, I can judge all this evil, but I myself, well, it's fine, God loves me and he's merciful to me. St. Paul is condemning the hypocrite who either thinks he's such a great person or B, presumes on God's mercy for him and not his mercy for others. 
And so in verse 5, he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is where we get into uh, statements that Jesus makes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because St. Paul is writing to a church. And he's writing to a church that must have this sort of problem, or at least the potential for that problem, for people to be sitting there thinking that they're either going to heaven because they're great people, or B, they're going to heaven because, well, God forgives them. He doesn't forgive anybody else. And a good point on this. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God gave us forgiveness. God gave us great kindness and grace that we did not deserve. Did he do that for nothing? Absolutely not. There's, there is no room in the scriptures for what is called antinomianism, where God forgave you, he loves you, and now you don't have to obey God's law or do anything to be a good Christian except just uh, you know say a few words here and believe. There's no point to it other than he just wants to save you because he loves you, you see. No, there's a point to your salvation, and a huge point of it is repentance, or as Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Meaning, from the bottom of your heart, as a Christian, as somebody that God has freely chosen to save, you now have, as we mentioned a few times now in this series, the new obedience. And a big part of that new obedience is repenting of dead works. God's kindness to us, his salvation that he gave us, is meant to lead us to repentance doing our best to be better people. St. Paul here is condemning the guy that doesn't think that way. That thinks instead that he's going to earn heaven. And he, he's such a holy person, such a Pharisee, that oh he'll be fine. He's a great guy. Or on the flip side, somebody who presumes upon, upon God's grace himself but doesn't think that way for outsiders, for non-believers. God could never possibly have grace for them. By the way, if it sounds like I'm repeating myself a lot, it's because I am. It's this sort of thing that we need to read and reread and state and restate and interpret and reinterpret a whole lot of what St. Paul is getting at to get a clear picture of what he's saying. So, why does St. Paul bring up the hypocrite, though? After all, we're, we're not really in a position to say, well, well okay, he, he brings up these non-believers, that should be enough. 
why would why would St. Paul bring up other people? Because he wants to in before. He wants to preempt responses that people in the Roman church or the non-believers that St. Paul would very much like to evangelize. He wants to preempt their responses. Our response to chapter 1 should be, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I know that I've been guilty of these things. But on the off chance that somebody says instead, no, 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 no. I'm going to justify myself here. I'm a great guy and I can judge those people out there who do that bad stuff. Don't worry about me. St. Paul says, no, you're not holy. Everybody has this struggle with sin and here you are claiming that you're some great person and that's why you're going to heaven. Now forget you. You're, you're under the same wrath and condemnation as the total non-believers. And if you're an easy believist, same thing applies to you. He is preempting this and in the meantime also bringing up, hey, there is a day of wrath. There is a day of judgment. You should be aware of that. We need to have this healthy fear of God in our hearts, knowing that he hates sin. Even in, and probably especially in, those who are baptized believers in Jesus Christ. Because we are without excuse. No one has an excuse, but we believers in Jesus are doubly so. So we continue then in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 6, to see, well, where is St. Paul going with all of this? It's, it's pretty hard. He's not allowing us to say, well, I'm righteous for X, Y, and Z reason. So he continues in verse 6. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So, the Protestant reads this and starts quaking in his boots a little. Oh no, oh no, what happened to my sola fide? What happened to my justification by faith alone? Oh, oh no. <laughs> It says he'll render to each one according to his works. I am hosed. Silly Protestants, brothers and sisters of the Reformation. We need to realize that if St. Paul here in verses 6 and 7 is talking about works righteousness and being justified by works, if that's really what he's getting at, then he just contradicted himself. Because when he says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Elsewhere in the book of Romans, he's going to bring up that all of us, every single human being, spoiler alert, are sinners. If we would be justified by our works, 
Even if it's faith plus works, guys, we're hosed. St. Paul is not saying that we are judged according to uh, our righteousness for salvation. So let's reread this and try to cast a, a little bit more of a discerning eye on it. He will render to each one according to his works. Whose works? Because if God renders to me according to my works, well, what are my works? There's nothing. And, well, let's, let's take a look at verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Where do I find glory and honor and immortality? Better question. With whom do I find glory and honor and immortality? In Jesus Christ. Not in me. And when he says, by patience and well-doing, whose well-doing? Whose works? Whose glory and honor and immortality? It ain't mine. It must be Christ. He will render to each one according to Christ's works. When we're, when we're talking soteriology here, that is excruciatingly important. Because in verse 8, he then contrasts that with those who are self-seeking, as opposed to Christ-seeking, who do not obey the truth. Now, obeying the truth is simply believing in the truth. Truth is not a moral command. Truth is the truth. You either believe it or you don't. Obeying the truth is belief in the truth. And, and Christ is true. But obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Those who are self-seeking, not Christ-seeking, are automatically going to be not obeying the truth. They're not truly putting their trust in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, according to Christ himself in John 14, verse 6. Are we getting it? This is not St. Paul saying, if you're going to be justified by your works, you're, you're, you're totally not going to escape the judgment of God. But by the way, you should escape the judgment of God by uh, doing so well and seeking glory and honor and immortality for yourself. <laughs> That's how you get saved. You get saved by the same exact thing that I said won't save you. Especially when we look at if I am with patience, and doing good deeds. I am seeking glory and honor and immortality for myself. Where does that put me? That puts me squarely in verse 8. Those who are self-seeking. This does not mean we are justified by works. This means you're going to be one of two people. Either you are Christ-seeking or you are self-seeking. Which one is it going to be? Now, is it true that, yes, there are rewards in heaven where God does give people certain 
degrees of honor or glory based on what they did in this life. Yeah, scripture attests to that. But I don't believe that's what St. Paul is talking about here. There's no way. Because the reward that he speaks of in verse 7 is eternal life. And we don't get that except by Jesus. And if I was to try to do it by being a great person, by patience, in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, I'm not earning eternal life because all of humanity is sinful and St. Paul just condemned those who think they can seek all this stuff for themselves. And so, he says in verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And it sounds more, again, oh, doesn't do good or who does evil and those who do good, hmm, that sounds like works righteousness. That sounds like justification by faith plus works, dude. What are you going to say to that? Easy. What does John chapter 6 verse 29 say? Well, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's doing good. Now we'll get again into monergism versus synergism soon, maybe sometime this year. But ultimately, given all of Scripture, the Book of Romans doesn't exist in a vacuum here, the work of God doing good consists in the Christian believing. That's the work of God. Now, from there, that faith, which God gives and expects us to receive the faith from faith, that will inspire in us the new obedience. Absolutely, and that means wanting to do good works, wanting to be more righteous than I am, wanting to please my God. But what St. Paul is bringing in here, it's who you base your life on. Those who do evil are those who are self-seeking. Those who do good, i.e. believe, those are the Christ-seeking. That is the dichotomy that St. Paul is bringing up here with the in before that you cannot say, I got this. But St. Paul is never one to just let something be, is he? He has to mention the Jew and the Greek. And we have to remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to an, a congregation full of people, which includes Jews and Gentiles. And here he's starting to move on from, well, there's those who are non-believers who, well, they have no excuse because they know God exists, but they're, well, they're sinning anyway, and they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And then there's the self-justified people who, well, inevitably will be hypocrites. And then there's the people out there who 
are easy believists who think that it's okay for them to just sin all willy-nilly and the new obedience doesn't factor into their lives. He's in before all of that, but now he's writing to a congregation where there might be some people, some of them, who will say, well, you don't get it. God gave the covenant to the Jewish people. There might be a Jewish person out there who says, well, he's fine because he's circumcised according to the law of Moses and he always goes to the Passover in Jerusalem and he is careful to obey all of the law. St. Paul is not giving room for that. So he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, we might wonder why St. Paul would say God shows no partiality after saying, well, the Jew first and also the Greek. Well, it's because St. Paul is not putting Jews on pedestals for the history of the covenants, for the Mosaic law. He's actually bringing them down to the same level as the Greeks, only with first as a chronological thing. The church, the scriptures, everything was given to the Hebrew people first. They were the ones in the Exodus. They were the ones wandering in the wilderness. They were the ones with the proto-gospel preserved among them. So he says, well, to the Jew first, those who, who knew all of this stuff and had the law and had the, the basic version of the gospel according to the Old Testament first, but now also to the Greek. And well, for those Jews who would be justified by the law, he puts them in the same category as the hypocrites. And we continue reading then in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. First and foremost... He's telling everybody, well, look, if you're a Gentile and you sin, it doesn't matter if you didn't know about the law in your head in some intellectual sense. You're still judged. And if you're a Jew, well, you're still a lawbreaker. Now, as for the verse which says, <laughs> us Protestants just quaking in our boots again, we... We just ended the tremors, guys. We just ended the, the foot shaking and the nervous sweats. When we read, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And our Roman Catholic friends go, ha ha. Our Orthodox friends go, ha ha. In case you're worried about that, question for you. After having just said in verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God, the guy who just said by self-righteousness you're not going to be justified, who just said in chapter 1 that everybody is under God's wrath for their sins, 
Could this be anything other than a hypothetical? No, it can't. It's a hypothetical statement. The law, supposedly, if there was somebody who could perfectly obey it, then yes, they would be justified by being a really good boy. But that's not us. And we're, as we keep reading, we'll understand that he, it has to be a hypothetical according to the context of Holy Scripture. But the question still remains, well, the Jews had the law, the Gentiles didn't. Oh my goodness, does that mean, well, the Jews have some sort of super advantage? Well, kind of, let's keep reading. In verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Saying that the law is written on the Gentiles' hearts. So a Gentile cannot plead ignorance to the law because it's, it's in you. Societies that have had zero contact with the Ten Commandments still have laws against stealing. Societies that have had zero contact with the Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery, still have laws against, well, fornication or adultery. Maybe they don't get it 100% right. Because we are sinful, after all, and there is a what's called the noetic effect of sin. That means the law is a little fuzzy in our hearts. Even then, there's still laws that will bear a resemblance to the Ten Commandments. All of Christian morality stated in those Ten Commandments according to our catechisms. So he says that he, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts when their, you know, their conscience bears witness to what they do. Or when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, he's saying it's, you can see this in human behavior. We still have the law whether we can read it or not. So when he does say, though, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, we have to ask, what does he mean by that? Well, what day? I don't think he's thinking about the final day necessarily, but God constantly will see our thoughts, will see our secrets, and he's going to judge this according to Jesus Christ. Am I trusting in him to help me with those secret thoughts, with those secret sins. We all have secret sins. We all have things that we've either forgotten or wish we could forget and wish nobody knew about. And God is going to judge that according to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you trust in him for your salvation? Do you go to him for absolution? Do you rely on his blood instead of your own righteousness. Even the Gentiles are under that same rule set. 
But turning back to the Jews, St. Paul turns to the Jews in the Roman congregation, and then he talks to them. In verse 17, he says, If you call yourself a Jew, but if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Thankfully, St. Paul gives us another in before. Us quaking, fearful Protestants, we read here in uh, verse 13, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we start quaking until St. Paul addresses the Jews and says, Well, wait. So you call yourself a Jew. And you're relying on the law. For what? Well, for your righteousness. And you boast in God. And you know his will. You're doing all these things. You consider yourself a guide to the blind. You are engaging in the greatest tikkun olam. Healing the world with how righteous you are. And how much you love the Torah. He says, do you not teach yourself? When you're preaching, I mean, do you steal? Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Well, by the way, some Jews did uh, steal from pagan temples to show their contempt for idolatry, which was a, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul here. You're stealing, violating the seventh commandment against stealing in order to demonstrate your own holiness and righteousness for not having any graven images. So he's saying, wait, do you, do you realize how hypocritical this is? So he says in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In the middle of your self-righteousness here, in the middle of your supposed piety, you're dishonoring God. You're sinning. Yes, it's the doers of the law who will be justified, but if you're trying to claim that you're a doer of the law, you're hosed, pal. You have no righteousness of yourself. And everybody knows it. In verse 27, sorry, verse 24, it says, As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because all these Gentiles were seeing this behavior and going, These guys think they're good people? No, they're not. Oh my goodness, what kind of God do they worship that is totally fine with them hurting me and my family so long as they claim that they have the law? As we can see from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to this point, St. Paul isn't giving anybody a break. He's not 
allowing anybody to claim their own righteousness. And he chips away chunk after chunk after chunk of any claim that we would have for salvation outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Even if they're really, really special people. As we get into here in verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So we talk about the circumstances of birth. Circumcision being performed on the eighth day after a, uh, after a Hebrew's birth here. Uh, he's saying, well, okay, on the off chance, you're going to start bragging. Okay, well, I can't, I can't brag in the law, but I am a member of the chosen people. I, don't you understand? I am an inheritor of God's promises ever since Abraham. And while we will get into supersession, uh, hopefully sometime this year or this decade, St. Paul, when he brings up circumcision, it, it's not just the, the pee-pee snipping that he's bringing up. He's saying, well, sure, that would help you if you obeyed the law because the circumstances of your birth and who your mommy and daddy are, that's not going to help you because it's really about the law. It's if you obey the law. And that's consistent, by the way, with all of the law. The law judges God's people based on their obedience or disobedience to it, not because they were born as Israelites or born to the tribe of Judah or Issachar or anything like that. He says, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, does that mean their, their foreskin grows back? No. Circumcision here is serving as a symbol for the circumstances of birth, and uncircumcision would be outside of God's chosen people, outside of his Israel. And St. Paul is saying then that if the circumstances of your birth make you an Israelite, disobeying the covenant makes you not an Israelite. And that is a 100% consistent with what the law says. Just one little sneak peek at that train of thought comes from Deuteronomy chapter 29. When we read in here in uh, verse 22 for... And, context it's about the more or less Moses's prediction that they were going to disobey the law the next generation your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, 
Why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. God says, you don't want to be my country anymore because of this disobedience to my law and my covenant. So be it, you are not my people anymore. Your circumcision, the circumstances of your birth, I'm counting that as uncircumcision now on account of your disobedience. But we continue on. So if a man who is uncircumcised, verse 26, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Meaning, well, it's about the law, not about the circumstances of your birth, not about whether or not you are a, a part of national Israel or a bloodline. He says, well, will, that his, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Again, another hypothetical, because we've already covered that all the Gentiles, in addition to the Jews, were all sinners, sold into sin, sold into slavery. But, he says, this applies to them just as much as it does to you. The law is a universal thing. It applies to everybody. So he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, in verse 28, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And we say amen to that. Now, Jeremiah talks about the circumcision of the heart. Moses talks about the circumcision of the heart. If circumcision of the body was what made you a member of God's Israel in a political, geographical sense, if that was your citizenship, that doesn't mean that you are part of God's people spiritually. What really matters, what really matters there is a circumcision of the heart. Your devotion to him, your faith in him. I will bring up that, yes, baptism is that circumcision now. But back then, as it is now, salvation was always by faith. Being part of God's people, his Israel, was always by faith, never by blood. Salvation is by grace, not race. Now, next week, we'll get into, well, what do you do with the Jews? What do you do with their history? What do you do with the, um, well, is the law an advantage for them, though? Shouldn't this be easier for them to really accept the gospel? We'll get into that next week. But ultimately, while people can have their geopolitical opinions regarding a, a race of people or a, um, a group, a country, however you want to say it, while in this world that might matter, to God, coram Deo, it doesn't. What matters is your believing loyalty to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. With this, St. Paul gives us just a little peek at the point he's making. 
but is going to diverge for quite a bit. But for now, we see with chapters 1 and 2 that he is breaking down and in beforeing any claim to salvation that is outside of Jesus Christ, even the law of God. And we'll get into more of the specifics and him preempting more questions and exceptions and everything that people might propose next week. But until then, God bless you. Amen and amen.